This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal. Hi, friend. Welcome to this episode of the Decoding Obesity Podcast. You know, we've been focusing on adult obesity all this while, so I decided to do a few episodes on pediatric obesity. Now, I'm not trained in pediatrics, and hence, you know, I was kind of avoiding this topic for a while. But I think it's equally important, if not more, to discuss pediatric obesity. So, you know, I wanted to bring in some specialists to discuss pediatric obesity who really specialize in this. So for today's episode, I want to welcome Dr. Lee Ettinger. So during Dr. Ettinger's nearly 17 years as a pediatric nephrologist at Hackensack University Medical Center in northern New Jersey, he saw more and more of his patients struggling with obesity. He dove into the medical literature to understand this complicated epidemic. I call it a pandemic, Dr. Ettinger, but I think, you know, it's such a big problem that this definitely needs to be tackled. So anyway, after discovering the benefits of plant-based eating for weight control, he started sharing diet and lifestyle advice with his patients, community groups, medical students, doctors, and nurses. He earned a certificate in plant-based nutrition from E. Cornell in 2016. In 2017, he joined the staff of the hospital's pediatric weight management program. In 2019, he became the diplomat of American Board of Obesity Medicine. When COVID-19 hit, Dr. Ettinger embraced telemedicine. In 2021, he founded the Dr. Herbivo Practice, which offers telemedicine visits for pediatric obesity in New York and New Jersey, and also has a Facebook group for education and entertainment. He also runs a blog, and we'll talk more about that as we dive into this discussion with Dr. Ettinger. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ettinger. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And really, thank you for putting the focus on pediatric obesity. It's an important topic, as you said, and someday my patients will be your patients, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important. And, you know, I was very uncomfortable with it because I've been trained in adult medicine for all my years and all of my training. And this was something that I am not comfortable dealing with. So that's why I have you and I'm going to have other specialists also. I think the way we can do it is we'll split this episode into two parts. We'll talk a little bit this week and when, you know, we'll publish the other part next week so that people can understand this in a better way and we can have a more detailed discussion around it. Let's just start by talking about, you know, what really is obesity in children? Well, there's a little bit different definition than adults. Certainly the body mass index is important, but for adults, the only really thing you can change is the kilograms per height squared. So the adults, your BMI, you can only really make changes in the weight, whereas children, they're growing. So their meter squared in height is going to change over time. So we can't look at exactly at a straight number, and we near, near, more need to look at percentiles as the child is compared to other age-matched and sex-matched controls, and taking into account that their BMI might be going down because their denominator, their height, is going up as they're growing. Right. So it's more of like comparing to other people and where you fall in that, as we call the normal bell curve, are you towards the other end or towards the middle where you would want people to be? But, you know, this would also vary with population to population. What I mean is by ethnicity, this would also vary, correct? Actually, according to the CDC, let me uh, read their exact 
quote. So they made these tables and these percentiles based on population studies. And according to the CDC, they say that the charts are based on samples of civilian, non-institutionalized children from all 50 states. And while the demographic makeup of the U.S. has changed in the last several decades, the CDC says that children of all major racial ethnic groups appear to have similar growth potential. Studies have demonstrated that genetic effects on growth are small compared with the effects of the environment, nutrition, and health. Regardless of racial ethnic status, children provided with good nutrition, access to health care, and good social and general living conditions have similar growth patterns. So we can confidently use these growth percentile charts and BMI charts. Of note, there is a different chart for people with Down syndrome, age 2 to 20. And also of note is that when we're working with premature infants, they have their own growth chart up to age two, and then they can use the growth charts that everyone else uses. Right. So let's just talk about these percentiles. What do they really mean? I think it'll be helpful if, you know, my listeners can understand what exactly do we mean by these percentiles? I know they're used as metrics for all of the parameters of, you know, monitoring the child's growth, but what do they exactly mean? So if you have a 15-year-old boy with body mass index that's in 95th percentile, the way I like to describe to the family is that if you line up 115-year-old boys, then your son is heavier, has a larger BMI, heavier body mass index than 95% of them, the other 95. And five of the young boys are heavier than him. So that can kind of put it on a scale that hopefully people can understand. So it's kind of like an average of, you know, seeing where you are compared to the population, right? Right. And this is where it gets into a little strange to say that nowadays, 19% of children in this country aged 2 to 19 have obesity. So how can it be? And obesity is defined as greater than the 95th percentile. So how can you say that 19% of the population has a diagnosis that 5% of the population has on the bell curve? So the problem is, or the issue is that we're comparing today's children to when the charts were made, which were based on populations from the 60s, 80s, and 90s. So it just goes to show that the obesity epidemic or pandemic, as you said, is affecting the children so that now 18% of the population has a diagnosis that in the past only 5% had. That's interesting. And, you know, I think you had pointed out that CDC also mentions that environment plays such a big role. And I think from the 60s to now, primarily what's changed is the environment, right? So I think that plays such an important role in the development of obesity, especially in children. Yes, yes, unfortunately, for better or worse. It's a problem of our success as a species. We have now conquered so much and we have so many easy calories, access to so many easy calories. Right. And Dr. Ellinger, you know, in adult medicine or adult obesity, we use other things like, you know, the waist ratio, the waist hip ratio, body fat percentage. Are there any other measures in children to measure obesity or we, do we just use BMI? So in other words, what's beyond BMI that you know, we look at? Right. The BMI is not a diagnostic tool. It's just a screening tool. So it should raise awareness. Certainly, a young muscular person might be carrying a lot of muscle mass and therefore their BMI would be apparently elevated, but they're not at risk for complications of obesity. So you can use some other metrics like the waist circumference although it hasn't been validated as much in children. There are charts available online. For example, there is a chart from the European Association for the Study of Obesity that has normal percentiles for the waist circumference of European boys and girls. There's also a figure that's available in the Journal of Pediatrics that has normal waist percentiles for children from India. 
But interestingly or concerningly, there are no charts specifically available for African-American or Hispanic-American children to measure and quantify or qualify their um, waist circumference to see if they're at risk for obesity-related complications. So, you know, Dr. Ettinger, this raises a very interesting question in my mind. Say somebody's of Indian descent or say somebody's of European descent, would it make more sense then to use the charts, say, from Europe or, say, from India, rather than using, you know, these BMI charts that we have standardized for the American population? Oh, so the that was what I was saying about different charts. Those were from regarding waist circumference only. According to the CDC, the body mass index charts are taken from all 50 states and usable from many different populations and usable, applicable to many different populations. But these are screening tools only and just guide your practice, not necessarily be the diagnosis. But I recommend an easier way rather than these charts. Let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think there are easier good. ways. And certainly there are apps and websites and stuff. I like to use the CDC. They have, you can plug in values for your child to see if they're at risk, if they're over the 85th percentile, meaning overweight, or over the 90th percentile, meaning obese. But there are easier ways. So one way is to actually just, when you're looking at an elementary school child, just to see if you can see their ribs. I'm not saying you should be able to see their ribs, but if you can see their ribs, then they're obviously not obese or overweight. And if they have a layer of body fat where you cannot see their ribs, that might indicate that they are overweight or obese. And then in high school kids, you're obviously not going to be able to see their ribs. But an easier way to tell is, you know, they're going through growth spurts and when you're buying pants for them, if you're finding that you're buying pants with larger and larger waist sizes without the need for a longer pant leg, then that could be an indication also that they're becoming obese. And it's actually important to pay attention because we've lost, the parents have lost the ability to really see, determine if their child is having a weight issue or not. There was a study in 2014 that looked at nearly 16,000 children and their parents and asked the parents to classify their child. Are they normal weight? Are they obese? Are they overweight? And half of the parents got it wrong. They thought that their obese or overweight child was actually normal weight. So because of the obesity epidemic, we've kind of parents have lost our ability to judge. So that's why there are these screening tools and hopefully that your pediatrician or, or primary care provider is discussing it with you too. Right. And Dr. Edinger, when patients come to you, pediatric patients for managing pediatric obesity, what metrics do you use if BMI is just a screening tool? What would you use to really diagnose pediatric obesity? I'm looking for complications also. As a pediatric nephrologist in northern New Jersey, a lot of pediatricians would refer me patients with high blood pressure thinking that in the pediatric age range, a lot of the cause is often due to a kidney problem, but I would rule out a kidney problem. I would rule out a heart problem, an endocrine problem, and I'd be sitting there with a kid with a BMI of 35 and start to talk to them about nutrition and lifestyle, sleep, things like that. And it's always nice when you can help someone lower their blood pressure through those measures. So yeah, when you're looking and you see someone with an elevated BMI, when you see someone, patient with elevated waist circumference, and you start looking, is there signs of fatty liver? Is there a high blood pressure? Is there insulin resistance or a higher hemoglobin A1C? So more using those as screening tools and then really looking for obesity-related complications. 
And unfortunately, seeing them at a younger and younger age, 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 8-year-olds, seeing me with these problems raises concerns. You know, is this BMI that we use as a, you know, the, the percentile as a screening tool, is it just like a one-point data point that you use, like a single-point data that you use, or do you trend it and see how it's going, which way it's going in terms of screening? Especially the trend, and especially because the height can be changing so rapidly through growth spurts. If you look at the BMI curves, the percentiles, they actually go down ages two through six. Your body mass index is going down as children typically, at least in their normal curves, have a growth spurt in that age group, and then they start to trend up. So you're going to want to follow if their BMI is staying exactly the same from ages two to six, that could be a cause for concern. Their BMI is not going up, it's staying the same, but that's because they're putting on more weight than height and they're actually crossing percentile lines, even though their BMI is staying the same in that age group. So yeah, you want to look at the whole graph and as many data points as possible because linear growth and height growth certainly affects the BMI too. Dr. Ettinger, the patients who have obesity in the pediatric age group, how frequently do you take these data points? Is this more frequent than a usual pediatrician visit, or would it be the same like you would do for any child? Right. So they're seeing their primary care doctor once per year, probably, for a well-child check. So the data points can be very infrequent. If I'm working with someone in the pediatric obesity clinic, then yes, I would want to see them more frequently. Studies have shown, at least in the adult population, I don't know about the pediatric population, if there have been such studies. That uh, more frequent visits, check-ins can help guide someone and catch them if they're gaining weight and make changes and be a closer monitoring that can be of benefit to the family. So yeah, you might see them once a month. I think that's been a great discussion so far, Dr. Edinger. I think we, we should stop here um, just so that, you know, there's a lot of information that uh, people need to process uh, and understand. Um, and uh, the next episode that we do, will definitely talk about, you know, the detrimental effects of obesity and the positive effects of obesity, if there are any um, in children. So uh, my friends, stay tuned and uh, I'll see you all next time. Thank you so much, Dr. Edinger, for joining me for this episode. And uh, we'll see them again. Oh, well, and we'll do the next episode soon. Yes, thanks for having me. I look forward to our next conversation. You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.